Amen. <laughs> Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 8. We've, uh, for a number of weeks, we've been going through the Gospel of John. When we were last together, we covered the seventh chapter, and I'll remind you of a couple of things that are taking place, because the eighth chapter is a continuation of some things that occurred there. Uh, John chapter 7 tells us about Jesus in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the annual harvest feast. That was the big celebration each year, each and every year. And everybody, it was one of the, uh, the three times per year that all the, the men had to go up into Jerusalem for, uh, uh, for the celebration, uh, as a reminder that God was the source of their blessings. And, uh, Jesus is in the tabernacle, or in the temple rather, and, uh, telling about certain things. He's done, uh, many miracle works in Jerusalem that the people have heard about. And as a result, in John chapter 7 and verse 31, I believe it is. Yeah, verse 31, it says, and many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ comes, will he be more, do more miracles than these which this man has done? In other words, many of the people are beginning to catch on to the fact that, wait a minute, this is the Messiah. How could the Messiah do anything more? It may, be not, it may not be the way that we thought that it was going to be. This may not be occurring the way that the religious leaders told us that it would. But who's going to do more than this guy is doing? As a result, the Pharisees take action. Verse 32, when the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him and, uh, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. In other words, if the people are calling him the Messiah or thinking that he might be the Messiah, the Pharisees think we've got to get rid of this guy. And so the rest of the seventh chapter is about their attempts to take him, but even the officers or their enforcers, the religious leaders' enforcers, and folks, religion always has enforcers. You need to keep that in mind. In every time period, religion has enforcers. There are still out, those out there today that are convinced that it's their job, that there's some kind of spiritual gift or spiritual office or spiritual mandate to set everybody else straight. And, and apparently that was the case here. But even the enforcers, the officers, when they were questioned by the Pharisees, why didn't you take him? He was right there in the, in the temple. Why didn't you take him? Their response was, we never heard anybody say anything like the stuff he says. And so they were, the Pharisees were, uh, were thwarted in their efforts. The remainder of the chapter talks about how that, uh, they're continuing their efforts and so forth. It says in, uh, verse 53, and every man went into his own house. Chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Everybody else is going home trying to figure out what their next thing is. And this is indicative of the Pharisees' attempt. What they're doing is they're trying to, 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 uh, uh, to strategize. They're coming up with ways and thoughts and ideas for how can we do this. Now, the, the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, we should say, and I, I hope you know the difference between some of these different names. The Sanhedrin was the council that had the ultimate authority. The Sanhedrin was the ones, were the ones that were primarily made up of Pharisees, but there were some others in there as well. But the Sanhedrin were the ones that had governmental authority. They're the ones that took Jesus before uh, Pilate and demanded that something be done. The Pharisees was a general religious group, a general uh, name for a religi- religious groups, uh, along with Sadducees. Now, the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was their ideas on the resurrection. Uh, Paul, in one place in his ministry, figured out that part of the group of Pharisees and part of the group were Sadducees, so he started talking about the resurrection, and then the Pharisees and the Sadducees got fighting each other and forgot about Paul. So uh, the religious groups will fight anybody, not only themselves, but uh, but anything they can find. So when uh, 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 the, the Sanhedrin, uh, are the high priest, the chief priest, and some of those guys, they're trying to come up with a master plan for how do we deal with this guy. But then there were other little groups that are trying to deal with Jesus and trying to bring him down too. Some of these guys are most probably trying to make a name for themselves because if they're the ones that can trip Jesus up, boy, that would make them the golden boy in, in the group. So here where it says uh, everyone went to his own house, certainly it means they went home for the day, but you can see from chapter 8 that they also uh, are coming up with different plans. Jesus went under the Mount of Olives, verse 1, but then early again in the morning, the next morning in other words, he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Notice what Jesus' purpose is, is for going into the temple. He's there to teach the people and help them. He's not there to pick a fight with the Pharisees. He's not there to pick a fight with the religious leaders. He's there to teach the people. But in the middle of his teaching, the Pharisees interrupt things and try to turn it around. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? So get the picture. Jesus is in the temple. He's sitting down. He's teaching the people. He's just teaching the people that want to hear him. I mean, this is a free will type situation. Everybody's coming to him. His, his, uh, 
Uh, he's pretty well famous. I think we could, uh, it's safe to say that at that point in time in his ministry, people are coming to hear what he has to say. They're wild by his teaching, by his doctrine, by the things that he's telling them about the Lord uh, or telling them about God, his father. And as a result, the people are just thrilled and, and so forth. And now the Pharisees want to turn this thing around. See, you can't leave things alone because if you're going to have the last word, if you're going to be the ones to say how things are, you can't let things alone and just see how they work. You remember later in, uh, in Paul's ministry, there was a, a, a certain one, a certain one that, um, uh, uh, well, I said it was in Paul's ministry. It wasn't in Paul's ministry. It was during Peter and the apostles' uh, time in Jerusalem. Uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the, the Sanhedrin, the, the governmental group, were trying to figure out what do we do about these people that are now doing the works of Jesus. One of the guys, one of the guys was smart enough to say, let's leave this alone. Because if it's God, it'll, it'll show that you don't want to be fighting against God. There's nothing you can do about it anyway. And if it's not God, it'll prove itself out and it'll all fizzle out over a period of time. Let's just let the thing go. That doesn't seem to be the case with these people. So they came in. They said, now Moses said in the law that this woman should be stoned. Can I ask you a question? Where's the guy? She's taken in the very act of adultery. Do you get the picture here? Now, somebody's religious, somebody's religious job is to catch people doing wrong stuff. And they have done their job well. We caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Where's the guy? I mean, it's pretty obvious since it was adultery, she was not alone. Right? We don't hear a word about the guy. The Bible says something about the guy, just or the, the law of Moses says something about the guy just as much as it does the girl. Don't hear a word about him, though, do we? So they question Jesus. Now, Moses said in the law that she should be stoned. But what do you say? Now, folks, please understand this group, small group of Pharisees and scribes, whoever they are, they think they have come up with the master plan. This is probably something that was designed or, or planned for earlier on, just waiting to catch somebody in this situation so they can trap Jesus. Because if he's got two options here. If he says, well, let's just show mercy to her, then he's condoning her sin. He's ignoring the law of Moses. But if he exercises judgment and says, that's right, she needs to be stoned, then what's the difference between him and the Pharisees? He, they know that he's going to lose his place with the people. So they think they've got him in an impossible situation, trapped, totally trapped. So what does Jesus do? Uh, we, well, I guess we better read verse 6. I left that one out. We're back up to verse 5. Now Moses in the law says, commanding, uh, in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus, here's what Jesus did, stooping down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, they're not going to let this go. They're pressing him. He's not responding to them. He's writing with, on the ground with his finger, but they continue to press upon him. Answer us. Tell us. What do you say? Tell us. What are, what are you going to do about this situation? Give us an answer. They kept on and kept on and kept on. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that was at, that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, folks, let me let me stop here for a minute. You know the end of the story, how that they're convicted by their conscience and they go out and they leave and, and so forth. But let me draw something to your attention. Who gave the law to Moses? The very one they're challenging. Think about this. Now, they don't know this. They haven't accepted this. But think about what's going on. Jesus is standing here, and they're, be, they're throwing the law that he gave, that the Bible says in Exodus chapter 30, uh, it says in Exodus, I'm not sure what verse it is. The Bible says in Exodus that he wrote the law in stone tablets with his finger. He's the one that gave the law. Now, they're the ones that came up with all the other stuff about what the law means and what that means we should do and so forth. But he's the one that wrote the law in, in stone with his finger. So what does he do now? Now he's writing in the ground with his finger. What do you think he's writing? I've thought about this a lot. I've meditated on this a lot, and, and, and uh, there's no way to know for sure. We can speculate. But one thing that we do know, and I guess it would be a good time to read the, the, the ninth verse, we know what the result of his writing was. Maybe that will give us a hint about what he, what he wrote. Verse 9, and they which heard it, 
what Jesus said, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped and rode on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. I want you to notice something. Jesus rode on the ground twice. He writes once, they press him. They, they continue to ask him, what do you say about this? What are you going to think we ought to do? Or what do you say we ought to do about this? And he finally says, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. They're not convicted then. But he writes again. And after he writes the second time, that's when they're convicted by their own conscience. It took me a long time. I read this story thousands of times before I ever noticed that. It was the second thing that Jesus wrote that caused them to be convicted in their conscience. That means that what he wrote the second time must be different than what he wrote the first time, or else the first time would have caused them to be convicted. Are you following me? Are you following me? <laughs> that means following me. Are you following me? You see where I'm coming from on thinking this along this line. Now, I can't prove anything. I don't know for sure, but I've got a witness in my heart about some of this stuff. So I'm going to present it to you, and you judge it for yourself, okay? Don't take it just because I say it. Don't take my word for anything. You judge it according to the Scripture. But the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is that which convicts us. It's that which brings conviction to our own conscience. Now, your conscience can be seared. Your conscience can be ignored. There's all kinds of things that can happen. But Jesus did something in the two times that he rode on the ground that caused him to have a change of heart. They're ready to kill this woman. Ready. Expecting to. And something caused them to change their heart. What was it? I believe, personal personal opinion, I believe that the first thing that Jesus wrote was he wrote the law. I think he's writing the Ten Commandments. I think he's writing the same thing that he carved in stone those hundreds and hundreds of years ago, even thousands of years before when he gave it to Moses. I think he's writing the law because he knows that nobody is guiltless where the law is concerned. So I think the first thing he's doing is writing the law. The second thing, after he says, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. I think the second thing that he does, he start writing things relating to Old Testament scriptures about mercy. Now, here's Jesus' problem, at least how the Pharisees saw it. As I said, he's got two options. He can either ignore or condone her sin, and then that makes him a lawbreaker. That makes him contrary to the law. That gives them something to accuse him of. Or he can join in and say, yeah, that's right. Sorry about this lady, but you've got to die. How is that going to draw people to the goodness of God? It would certainly show us justice, but is that what the law was intended to define? Justice, justice. Now, the Bible says grace and truth was identified through Jesus' ministry and through Jesus' time here on the earth. That's what he revealed to us. He revealed the truth, which is that God is a holy God, God is a righteous God, and you can't sin can't stand before him. But it's also true that the grace of God is what it was intended from the beginning, and that is mercy. I think the first thing Jesus wrote were things containing, pertaining to the law, and the second thing he wrote were things pertaining to mercy. Which one's true? See, the mercy of God is part of the law, too. So when Jesus says, he that's without sin, let him uh, sin, let him cast the first stone among you, he goes back to writing. He starts writing things about mercy. You remember what Jesus said in, in his earthly ministry, early in his ministry about mercy. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, that's scriptural. That's in line with what the Old Testament said. What if he's writing things like that? What if he's got the law written over here, which they know they're guilty of, and then he writes things about mercy over here, and he kind of is leaning back and say, okay, you choose. What are you going to do? He doesn't tell them what to do. He just makes the suggestion. He says very simply this, those of you that are worthy to uh, exercise the law of judgment, go ahead. You go first. Verse 10, when Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are, thine, where are those thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He's not condoning her sin, is he? He says, Go and sin no more. Now, you know what's interesting about this, folks? There's a principle and a parallel about this. First of all, I want you to see, let me make a couple of comments, and then I want you to see the real underlying principle about this that I hope is a, a help to you. And that is this. Notice, uh, notice, first of all, the religious leaders, since they're not really interested in the truth, they leave Jesus. They don't drop their rocks or whatever the case is and sit down next to where Jesus is and says and say something like, Wow. We really almost made a mistake there. Teach us. 
No, they don't want to know. They don't want to hear from him. Now, the other, they're not the only Pharisees there. They're not the only religious leaders that are there. You'll see that as some of the uh, upcoming scriptures will show. They've now been embarrassed in front of everybody. But here's the principle that I want you to see by this, and that is how many of you, let me ask you a question, how many of you have ever had the devil tell you that you're not worthy of the things of God? Does that happen to any of you? Okay, well, it's happened to me once or twice. It happens to all of us, right? Let me ask you a question. Who is he to accuse you? Now, I've made the mistake many, many times before I learned better. I made the mistake a bunch of times listening to, and that mistake was to listen to his accusations. I made the mistake in thinking things about myself that he told me about me. I made the mistake of thinking in, in some cases that God was thinking about me what he said God should be or he said the way that I was. In other words, I made the mistake of thinking the worst about me and then thinking God was thinking the worst about me. But notice the principle that Jesus brings here. Jesus very simply says, who are you to condemn her? In so many words or in, in the lack of so many words through his actions, he basically said, who are you to condemn her? Who are you to condemn her? Can I ask you a question, folks? Who is the devil to bring accusation against you? Like he's never missed it? (laughs) Remind him of his future a little bit and see how long he hangs around. But what do we do? We take the condemnation of the devil. We take the accusation of of the devil and we think, oh, that's right. I've tried, but God knows I'm just not worthy. Really? Jesus' whole point is, to say that even though she sinned, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. In other words, if you have missed it, if you have messed up, you're the perfect one for the mercy and the grace of God because that's who Jesus was sent for. Jesus doesn't need to help people that have never missed it. But our thinking is God wants us so that we've never missed it. Well, then how does he get to help? Now, don't get me wrong. I know somebody could take this to an extreme and say, well, let's go sin all we can because then the grace of God will be ours. That's not that's not the plan or the purpose either. But, folks, the devil has no right to accuse you. The accusation and the guilt and the condemnation that he tries to bring against you, he has no right to bring it. He's not qualified to exact the judgment of God. Jesus has done that. And he took it on himself instead of bringing it to you. So he restores her. Verse 12, then spake Jesus again unto them. Now, who is the unto them? That's the people that started there. Remember how we started? Jesus went into the temple. He sat down to teach the, the whoever wanted to hear him. They came. But then the Pharisees and the scribes came in and tried to stir up things and, and uh, twist the direction of this thing with, by the woman that was taken in adultery. They've now gone. They've left from the oldest to the youngest. Uh, older people learn to be a little less judgmental, I guess, than young folks. But now they're gone. But everybody that was there before is still there. So now Jesus is going to speak to them. You'll find out that there are still other Pharisees in this group, and it'll tell us about them. But it says, Then Jesus spake unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, what is he saying? He has just shown that he is the moral light of the world. Now, folks, you need to understand something. There's two things that Jesus identifies about himself. Number one, he identifies that he's a moral light, and he identifies that he's a spiritual light. In the upcoming scriptures, you'll see the difference between the two. What that means is this. He's saying that he is the basis and foundation for all moral authority, therefore human law. The question was about the laws of man. We've taken this woman in the law in adultery, the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say? How did Jesus respond? He just showed law and mercy. And he said, he that's without sin cast the first stone. He's saying, I'm the moral light of the world. In other words, you can have somebody that is an unsaved judge, for example, exacting judgment and exacting the law of man in a righteous manner, but that doesn't mean they are spiritually alive or lit. They can have moral authority because Jesus is the foundation for all the moral authority in the world. That's why a country should, and our country was founded on the the moral laws of God, and as a result, the blessing of God has been uh, America's from the founding until today. Things are starting to change. 
because the foundation is starting to change. But now think about it. How many real strong Christian leaders have we had during the time between the founding and now? Not really too many. Well, how is that possible? See, people have the idea that if we just elect a Christian as president, if we just elect a Christian as a leader, if we get the right person, then it'll all work. No, it won't. That's not why it works. It works because the law of God is the foundation for the laws of our country. Now, if we have a Christian or a spiritual leader on top of that, that's gravy. But it's not dependent on that. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's good to have, no question about it. But it's not dependent on that. But the thing that's going to make the difference with the country and is making the difference with the country is when the foundation, that moral authority, which is the foundation that was built upon Jesus and the Judeo-Christian uh, ethic that's, uh, that's talked about sometimes, referred to sometimes, when that changes, then the whole thing goes out the window. So Jesus is saying, first of all, I'm the moral light of the world. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The second part has to do with spiritual light. He says, if you walk with me, you won't be in darkness. In other words, darkness is still in the world. I'm the light of the world. I'm the moral authority for the world, but the world is still in darkness. To overcome the world's darkness, you're going to have to get the spiritual light. See what he's saying? Now, notice how the Pharisees respond to this. The Pharisees in the next verse are all about playing with words. One of the most frustrating things about uh, about the country that we live in today, the, the culture that we live in today, is how everybody tries to redefine the meaning of words. You'll find that they'll pass bills that'll do exactly what the bill says that it does. Why? Because people have learned if you play with the language, then people will think you mean one thing and you really mean something else. So it's not about truth, it's about the language. That's what the Pharisees are doing. The Pharisees are going to play this religious game. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He that that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall walk in light. So the Pharisees say, you're bearing record of yourself, so your witness isn't true. Their whole thing is to try to trip him. They don't care what's true. They're just trying to trip him up. Folks, you can get so embroiled in a battle. You can become such a, a, a fighter that the truth... And reality goes out the window, and it all becomes uh, it all becomes about who wins, not about what have you won. So the Pharisees said, "You bear record of yourself; your record is not true." Now that goes back to chapter five, where Jesus said, uh, "Let me uh, see if I can find the the scripture." Chapter five and verse thirty-one, Jesus said, "If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true." So even Jesus has said, if I'm the one bearing witness of myself, then that's not true. But that does not mean that he can't bear witness of himself. That means if I'm the only thing bearing witness of myself, then my witness isn't true. He goes further in chapter 5 to say, it's the Father that bears witness of me. It's the Scriptures that bear witness of me. I'm not just telling you in and of myself. But the Pharisees are now saying, you don't even have the right to tell people who you are. And that never was the case. So they say, you're bearing record of yourself, so your your witness isn't true. Jesus answered and said unto them, though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true because. Here's why my record was is true. It was re- true in chapter 5 because the Father and the Scriptures also bore witness to him. Here it's true because he says, because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. And you don't. In other words, he's saying, it's only right for me to tell you because I know where I came from. It's only right for me to tell you who I am because I know where I'm going. But you cannot tell whence I come and whether I go. Verse 15, you judge after the flesh, I judge no man. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Does that mean Jesus never judges? Or is that taken out of context? I think we take that out of context a lot because Jesus is very simply talking about this circumstance. He's saying, you're judging things according to what you can see. You're judging according to the flesh. You're trying to judge who I am based on your thinking and your rationale about you and the system and, and, and how it all is supposed to work. He says, I don't judge according to the flesh. I judge no man, meaning according to circumstance. Well, then who do you judge by, Jesus? He judges according to the spiritual things. He judges according to the truth. He goes further and says, and yet if I judge, so it must be okay for him to judge. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father then sent me. In other words, he's saying, I'm not judging according to what I like or don't like, which is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They don't like Jesus because they can't control him. They don't like Jesus because he's more popular than they are. They don't like Jesus because he presents a threat to their system and their position. 
to their authority with the people, to, to everything that, they, that they're set up by. Their system is set up where everybody has to come through, to and through the priest, concerning anything and everything regarding God. Jesus shows up and says, no, nah, that's not the way it works. The priests are set up here, but God wants you to know him for himself, for yourself. And the priests are saying, wait a minute, what do you mean? Jesus said, well, let me show you a miracle. Jesus does a miracle, and the people flock to him and say, oh, wow, we've never heard anybody say things like this. Well, where are the Pharisees in all this? The Pharisees sitting on the side saying, what are we supposed to do about this? The people are going to him instead of coming to us. They think he's something great instead of us. It's all about jealousy. It's all about them maintaining their position. Therefore, they're judging according to what they see. In other words, what they see is the the possible or the potential loss of their place in the eyes of the people. Their position of authority is now threatened. So they're judging everything according to that desire and position. So Jesus says, and yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Now, Jesus, John, it's interesting because John is, uh, this is the last gospel that's written. John writes this about 60 years after Jesus has uh, been crucified and raised from the dead. Uh, every, all the other books of the, of the New Testament have been written. They've all been distributed to the church. There's, uh, there's lots of information out there among the people and, and uh, a lot of rumors and uh, inaccuracies about things because they haven't been gathered together in the Bible as we know it. But, uh, but, uh, but many of the things, particularly the Gospels, are pretty well and widely uh, well-written, uh, well-read and widely distributed. And as a result, John comes in and he fills in the blanks. And one of the blanks that he fills in for us is he shows us more than any of the gospel writers how Jesus debated with the Pharisees. He never looked for the fights, but boy, he tells us, John tells us more about Jesus answering their questions and about how they try to trip him up. And if you just had the gospel of John, you'd think Jesus' whole life was dealing with the Pharisees and their their accusations against him. John emphasizes that as Jesus proves and shows that he's the son of God over and over and over again. So now Jesus is going to trip them up with their own words. He says, your law doesn't call it the law of God. He calls it your law. In other words, this is part of the, the tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is not what God has given them, what God gave Moses. This is now what the Pharisees and the religious leaders through the years, the rabbis through the years have determined. Here's how things ought to work. And so here's what the people have to do. See, they're the ones that are responsible for all the many ins and outs and little details and ticks here and do that and don't do that and, and can't do the other and all this kind of stuff. They're the ones responsible for that. So if the people want to know what's okay for us to do, they've got to go to the Pharisees or the, the religious leaders. So now Jesus says, it's also written in your law. In other words, you say that the testimony of two men is true. He says, here's two. I'm one that bears witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. Now, remember, this is all because the people have come to him in the temple in chapter 7 in verse, uh, what is it, verse 30, something like that, where the people come and they start, or verse 31, and they start saying, would the Messiah do any more than this? So when Jesus says, when I'm saying who I am, it's because I know where I came from. When I'm saying who I am, it's because I know where I'm going. And I've got the proof of the Father by the works and the miracles and the other things that are done of me. Not only that, but I've got the proof of the Old Testament scriptures that speak of me. So now he's saying, according to your law, my testimony is true. Then they said unto him, verse 19, I love this. They said unto him, where is thy father? Now, folks, here's something you need to keep in mind, and and it's going to run throughout the whole rest of the chapter. And that is, there is going to be an argument on the part of the Pharisees about who the Father is. They don't think. They refuse to think. They can. They can understand if they wanted to, but they refuse to understand. They refuse to accept that when Jesus is talking about the Father, that he means the God of Abraham. They think he's talking about somebody else. They think that he's got to be from somebody else. Now, Why? What would cause him to think that? He's doing everything that the Old Testament prophets did. He's telling the truth. He's he's speaking the word of God. He's never said one thing contrary to the law of Moses. He's never done one thing contrary to the, the Old Testament law. There's nothing that he's done that they can bring accusation against him. He even questions him about that later on. He says, if I, if what I've done is not true, then don't believe it. But what have I done that hadn't been true? What have I told you that hadn't been true? 
Now look at the miracles. Somebody's helping him do the miracles. Who is it? Well, we know it's God. Jesus says, it's the Father in me that does the works. Well, then Jesus must be okay with God if God keeps doing this stuff through him. But they refuse to accept it. So now comes the real question. They ask, where is your father? You keep talking about your father that bears witness of you. Where is your father? Now, do they think that he's talking about a natural man, a human? I don't know. They certainly don't accept that he's talking about God because Jesus finally explains that to him and they try to kill him. So they said, where is thy father? And Jesus answered and said, you neither, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have also known my father. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. He's right out there in the open for everybody to see and hear. Then Jesus said again unto them, I go my way and you shall seek me and I sh- and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, you cannot come. Now, what's he telling them? He's telling them very simply, you're playing with your own lives here. This is very serious stuff. You may think this is about who holds a position of authority in the eyes of the people, but it's a lot more serious than that. And he very simply says, I'm going where I'm going to go, where you don't know where it is, but I know where I'm going, and you're going to die in your sins. Can I ask you a question, folks? I thought the Bible says, or doesn't the Bible say that Jesus died for the sins of the world? He's not dying for theirs. He just very simply said, you're going to die in your sins. Why? Well, in uh, as far as potential is concerned, he died for everybody's sins. But he is identifying their refusal to accept him. And folks, please understand, God doesn't argue with people forever and, and continue to work on them. Jesus is clearly saying, you're never going to believe. You're never going to believe. Some people are never going to believe. Now, I appreciate people's compassion to keep reaching out and all this kind of stuff, but you need to realize God comes to the place. You may not, but God comes to the place where he knows this person's never going to believe. This person's lost cause. That's certainly scriptural as far as the Old Testament is concerned. God told Moses in the Old Testament, leave Ephraim alone. He's joined himself to his idols. His choice, just like their choice, but Jesus is telling them the end result. He said, you'll die in your sins. Whether I go, you cannot come. Then said the Jews, here again, they're trying to play on words. Their whole thing is to ridicule him at this point. They can't argue with what he's saying, so they're trying to ridicule him. So they say, is he going to kill himself? (laughs) Because he says, he says, whether I go, you cannot come. What does he mean? Is he going to kill himself? And Jesus said unto them, you are from beneath and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I said, therefore, unto you that you shall die in your sins for... Because if you believe not that I am he, the Christ, in other words, you shall die in your sins. Their choice. And they're making it again and again and again. Then they said unto him, who are you? Now, folks, how could it be clearer with the things that we've seen in just the times Jesus has been in the temple? How could it be clearer who Jesus is? He has said over and over again, who he is. He said it's the Father in him that's doing the works. He said he's only speaking the words of the Father. Who else does Father mean to the religious people? They're the ones that talk about the Father. They don't call him the Father. They call him God, but they talk about him all the time. Who do they possibly think that he's talking about? This says to me you can get so blinded by your own ambition. You can get so blinded by your own thinking that you can't see the truth that's right in front of you. So they said, who are you? And Jesus said, even the same one that I said unto you from the beginning. I'm the same person I told you from the beginning. Jesus knows that he's told him clearly. I'm not somebody new. Same one. Notice verse 26. He says, I have many things to say and to judge of you. Another, a better translation, in my opinion, is I could have many things to say of you. And I could have many things to judge you for. But, he's going to restrain, but he that sent me is true and I speak to the world just those things which I've heard of him. In other words, I'm not here to try to prove you wrong. I'm not here to try to judge you. I'm here to tell you the truth that God has sent me to tell. That's all. And that's what they're rejecting. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. How is that possible? How is that possible? Folks, i got to tell you, I see things like this in, in other areas. I see Christians that refuse to see the truth of healing. You can show them a thousand scriptures that says healing belongs to us, and they refuse to see it. And I wound up scratching my head saying, how is that possible? 
I've had other ministers tell me that, the, you know, I, one minister I was talking to in the area that, uh, that he was really upset that we were doing healing school and somebody from his church came to our church and got healed and that really caused him a problem. And so, uh, so anyway, he, uh, he was, uh, talking to me about some things, talking to me on the phone. He said, I just don't understand why you make such a big deal about healing. He said, I just don't see it in the Bible. And I said, man, I see it in every verse. I, I can't go a page without seeing scriptures on healing. He said, I just don't understand that. That's impossible. You're twisting scriptures. And I, and I wanted to say, no, you're just blind. How do people not see it? How is it possible not to see it? Well, it's possible by turning your eyes from the truth, by choosing to believe what you want to believe instead of what the truth is in front of you. That's what the Bible is saying here about these guys. It says they understood not. It doesn't mean they can't understand because you're going to find that Jesus talks to some people that do believe because of the things that he's saying. But they're refusing to believe. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, this is, uh, uh, well, let me just read it. Then said Jesus unto them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as the Father has taught me, I speak those things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Think about what's going to happen. These are the very people that are going to be around screaming, crucify him. These are going to be the very people that are connected with and associated with the Sanhedrin that's delivered Jesus up to be crucified. Now, when Jesus is crucified, they're going to have three hours of darkness that they've never seen before. Darkness that the Bible says is so thick that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. They're going to have an earthquake that splits their temple in half that causes the veil between the Holy of Holies and the the holy place to be torn from top to bottom, top to bottom. Now, this this thing was uh, 40 feet high, 20 feet wide, and about uh, one foot thick in the way that it was woven. I mean, this is a thick, thick thing. So something, the Bible indicates, grabs it from the top and splits it all the way down, tears it like paper. I believe that was an angel that did that. But regardless, it tells us what happened. It tells us immediately after Jesus is raised from the dead, they're going to know that the stones rolled away. They can't explain why it happens because two guards say that it just rolled on its own and two angels stood there. His body is going to be missing. They're going to know this stuff. The very ones that are talking to him now are going to know all these things happen. Then they're going to see the church come about and then the disciples start doing the same works that Jesus did in his name. Healing the sick, raising the dead, and doing all kinds of things in the name of Jesus. When Jesus says, after you've lifted me up, you're going to know who I was from. That's what he's talking about. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Now, they have to be Jews because remember, he's in the temple. Gentiles can't get in the temple. So these all the crowd has to be a Jewish crowd, Right? It tells us that he was in the temp, uh, the uh, treasury when these things took place. So that means he's in the outer court, not the inner court. That means he's where the, both the men and the women can go. The treasury was in the outer court where the women could come. You remember the Bible talks about uh, Jesus seeing a woman come in and throw two mites, a little widow come in and put two mites in there. Well, if it was in the inner part of the temple, the, the women weren't allowed in there. So the treasury was on the outside. It was in the outer court where the women were allowed. So this is where this is taking place. Jesus is in the temple. So this has got to be a Jewish crowd. So when he says Jews, it means the whole crowd. It doesn't just mean the Pharisees. The Pharisees are part of the Jews, or at least some of the Pharisees are there mixing and mingling in the crowd. So it says, and uh, Jesus spake, uh, then said Jesus, verse 31, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Now he's turning his attention. He's been talking to the Pharisees. Now he comes back to the crowd. And he says, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know how most people quote this? Most Christians quote this? Most people just say, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They don't give you the source of where the truth is coming from. They may not know where the source of truth is. But Jesus said, the truth, the knowledge of the truth will bring freedom. And there's only one way to find the truth, and that is in the Word of God. And there's only one way to make the Word of God knowledgeable to you, and that is by continuing in it. The word continue means to live in. If you live in my Word, then you'll know the truth. Notice he makes a distinction between the people that believed on him and disciples. He said to those that believed on him, if you continue in my Word, then are you my disciples indeed. In other words, you can be a believer and not live according to the word and not be a disciple. 
You remember what the Great Commission is? The church has turned the Great Commission in, uh, the Great Commission into going all over the world and get them saved. That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is go into all the world and make disciples of all men. Jesus defined disciples as believers who continue in his word. Folks, it's about the word. It's about living in the word. Jesus is going to say in John chapter 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. He it is that he that loves me is he it is. Uh, I'm sorry. He that keeps my word is he, is he is the one that loves me. Jesus says that the love of God is to live according to his word. He tells that to this group. Now, what's interesting to me is that they start arguing about it. It would seem to me that they would think, wow, he's just told us something really important. Okay, I'm with you, Jesus. But notice what they said. They answered him and said, we're Abraham's seed and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou you shall be made free? Are you kidding me? Jesus is identifying himself as the Messiah, not just through his teaching, but also through the miracles he's doing. And he's saying, now here's the key to being my disciple. The key is to continue in the word and it will cause you to know the truth and the truth will make you free. They're thinking naturally. And what's interesting is they're saying, we're children of Abraham. We've always been free. We've never been in bondage to anybody. They were born in bondage to Rome. What are they talking about? What kind of freedom do they think they have? That was one of the biggest questions in Jesus' ministry. People kept coming to him saying, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to get rid of these Romans? Are you going to lead us in a war against the Romans? And then Israel will be a free nation again? Yet these guys are standing there saying, we're Abraham's seed, and we've always been free. What do you mean we'll be made free? We don't need to be made free. Unbelievable. They said, we're Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. And how sayest thou, you shall be made free? And Jesus answered unto them and said, he's talking about spiritual freedom here. He said, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. If the son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And that, mean, that means the word indeed means really or in every way. I know that you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. We're back to the father again. Jesus is always talking about his father. John tells us more about it than anybody because Jesus is constantly proving that he's the son of God. He's constantly asserting that he's the son of God. It's not like he lived his life and tried to keep it hidden, folks. They answered and said unto him, verse 39, Abraham is our father. Then Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. That goes back to chapter 7. He's talking to the Pharisees as part of the group too. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. That's not what Abraham did. You call yourself the father of Abraham. You're not the father of Abraham in the way that you're operating toward me. You do the deeds of your father. And then they said unto him, we have been, we have, uh, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Now they've gone from saying Abraham's our father to God's our father. Jesus has got him exactly where he wants them. Now they're claiming to be children of God. And Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceedeth forth and came from God. He's been saying he's come from the father all along. Now he's saying clearly, I came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Here's the answer, even because you cannot hear my word. Why can't they hear the word? Because they have shut their minds off to the truth. And folks, people do that today just as much as they did it in Jesus' day. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father will you do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Why don't we listen to what the devil says? Jesus says he's a liar and the father of lies. Why don't we ever give any attention whatsoever to what the devil says? We shouldn't. And because I tell you the truth, verse 45, you believe me not. Which of you convinces me of sin? Prove that I've done something wrong. In other words. And it, but if I say the truth, why don't you believe me? You can't prove that I've done anything wrong. You can't prove that anything I've said is not true. Yet when I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. 
It's kind of a tough spot to be in, isn't it? He that is of God heareth God's words. You therefore hear them not because you are not of God. Then answered the Samaritans and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan? Um, Let me read that again. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and you do dishonor me. And I seek not my own, there is one that seeketh and judges. In other words, he's saying, I know what motivates you. You're seeking your own place. That doesn't matter to me at all. I seek one thing, and that is to please my father. There is one that seeketh and judges, that's God the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man shall keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, now we know that you have a devil. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? Well, they're playing right into his hands, folks. Art thou greater than Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets, which are dead? Who do you make yourself to be? Who do you think you are? Jesus answered and said, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Now, he's clearly saying, the one that they asked, where is your father? My father is the, is the one that says he's your God. The one that you say is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And, I should say, and if I should say I know him not, then that would make me a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Galatians chapter 3, about verse uh, 6, somewhere around there, said that God preached the gospel to Abraham. In other words, one of these times when Abraham had a vision, maybe Genesis chapter 15, when he fell into the deep sleep and he saw all the things that were going on, he saw the stars of the sky, he saw the sand of the seashore, he saw all the nations of the world being blessed by his through his name, in other words, through Jesus, his seed. The covenant that God is making with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 comes to realization where through Jesus, people of every nation, people of every tribe, people of every ethnic group, people of every walk of life can be part of Abraham's family. And that's what Jesus came to accomplish. The Bible says God showed that to Abraham from the beginning. Folks, can I, let me make a, let me make a comment. We have developed our own idea. It's not a scriptural idea. But we've developed our own idea that walking by faith means you never know what the future is going to hold. That couldn't be more wrong. Because everything about the promises of God, everything about the work of the Holy Ghost is to show you what the end is. Now, you may not be able to see how do I get from here to there. That's the walk of faith. You may not know how how am I going to change this situation to that which I see in God's promise. But you can trust God to show you the future. You can trust God to show you your latter days. You can trust God to show you what's coming down the road. Now, most people don't. Most people don't know they can. Most people never develop a relationship with the Lord to ask him for something like that. But you're supposed to. It's something God wants you to know. God doesn't expect you to go through life bouncing like a uh, pinball in a pinball machine trying to figure out what's going to happen next. That's not the way that we walk with him. We should see, I'm here This is what God has for me to do, but I can see down the road that that's where God wants me to be. That's how things are going to turn out. And you can have that vision as a motivating factor in your life. God did that with Abraham. If he did it with Abraham and won't do it with me, then that means that Abraham had something I don't have. That means the Bible's a lie because the Bible says God's no respecter of persons. The Bible says I've got the same covenant blessings and promises that Abraham had. God will show you the future. Amen? Okay, verse 56 again. Let me finish this up. We're out of time. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Notice the Jews are still trying to ridicule him. Folks, when people run out of arguments, they try to make fun. When they can't answer the truth, they either call names or make fun, try to ridicule. And Jesus said unto them, verse 58 is one of the great, I am scriptures and all of John. There are eight of them, eight different ones where Jesus says who he is. Jesus said unto unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying? He's saying, I am the one that talked to Moses in the bush. When Moses said, when the bush, the burning bush, God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, and he said, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And, And Moses' first question was, who will I say sent me? 
God answered and said, I am that I am has sent me. Tell them, I am that I am has sent me. That's what Jesus says here. He said, before Abraham was, I am. You can't get any clearer where he's saying, I am God. I'm the son of God. I'm one with the father. It was me in the burning bush. It was me that gave the law and the Ten Commandments. It was me. Then they took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. Don't let this hid himself thing, uh, phrase get you to thinking that Jesus is going behind pillars trying to, trying to get away from them. I don't believe that's the case at all. I think that just means Jesus veiled himself from, from them. You'll see in chapter 9 that as he passes by to the temple, he's not trying to stay in the, in the shadows. He's not trying to be unknown. He gets a guy healed. He draws attention to the fact that the works of God are still being done. So don't let that hit himself phrase throw you off. Jesus just simply walked through the middle of them. As he did every other time when they tried to take up stones to kill him until it was his time. Folks, Jesus says again and again and again. I love chapter 8 because chapter 8 identifies, number one, the mercy of God in the face of judgment that should be ours. And then secondly, it identifies who his disciples really are, the ones that continue in his word. You can't overemphasize the, the importance of the word of God in your life. You just can't do it. It's impossible. Because it's the source. It's the only source of the truth. It's the only source of real freedom in life. And then it shows us that Jesus said clearly, showed clearly, made himself known in the most obvious and clearest terms, I am God. And they still refused to hear it. Still refused to hear it. They didn't stop and say, wow, well, maybe that's what those miracles are about. No, they refused it because they had already set their mind on what they thought things had to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the life of Jesus as an example to us. The life of Jesus is an example to us in how we should live because you're our Father just as you are his. But it's also an example to us, Father, of your character and your nature. Father, we've all been in situations where we're just as guilty as the woman taken in the act of adultery. We've all had situations in our lives where we've done things where we deserve judgment and deserve penalty just as she did. And thank you, Father, that you've shown mercy to us just in the same manner that you did for her. Thank you that you haven't condemned us. You expect better from us, but you haven't condemned us. You haven't withheld your goodness. You haven't withheld your blessings from us, but you've maintained your position to be on our side and to be our help. Thank you, Jesus, because you are the very God of the universe. You came to do your Father's work. You came to fulfill his will, and you're you're alive inside of us to fulfill that will for each and every one of us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for guiding us. Thank you for showing us, Holy Spirit, that which is to come. Thank you for revealing your plan and purpose for our lives so that we can live up to it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed.